This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of Quantization. In this episode, we have Yuta Treviranus and Marcio Rio. They are talking around one core question, which is how do we develop indicators that come from the ground up? Okay, Kevin, if you could give us a signal that we can start, that'd be great. Sure, but first a brief introduction to our guests. Dr. Yuta Trevianus is the director of the Inclusive Design Research Center, IDRC, and professor in the Faculty of Design at OCAD University in Toronto. Yuta established the IDRC in 1993 as the nexus of a growing global community that proactively works to ensure that our digitally transformed and globally connected society is designed inclusively. Okay, wonderful. Marcia, um, it's wonderful to have you here. And of course, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. Dr. Marcia Rio is a legal scholar with extensive experience in community-based participatory research in the areas of human rights, health and social justice, particularly around international disability rights. She is a distinguished research professor in the School of Health Policy and Management and teaches critical disability studies and health policy and equity at York University in Toronto. Dr. Rio has lectured throughout the Americas, Europe, Africa, and Asia. She has been an advisor to federal and provincial commissions, parliamentary committees, and international NGOs, as well as United Nations agencies. She has edited a number of collected volume and more than 70 book chapters and articles on disability rights. She has also been a visiting scholar and professor at a number of international institutions. Dr. Rio was made a member of the Order of Canada in 2014. question I wanted to ask you and something that I ask lots of people is what are you currently most passionate about? What is something that either keeps you up or gets you up in the morning? Something you're working on, uh, chewing on, whatever. It's a wonderful question actually because as you know, Yuta, you always have two or three things that are burning and keeping you moving, Get up, getting up in the morning and stewing all day. But one of the things I've really been thinking a lot about is how do we develop indicators that come from the ground up? The traditional indicators for international agreements like the Convention on the Rights of the Child or the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities or the Convention on the Rights of Women, almost all of those have, are being developed from the top down. And they don't therefore reflect 
the ideas and the sensitivities and the interests and the understanding of people who are in the grassroots, in their communities. So we assume that inclusive education is kids going to schools in um, in regular schools with their with the neighborhood children but we don't but that doesn't mean very much if we go and ask kids what they think inclusive education is and they give us a completely different view and that's been for me that's been one of the things that I've really found challenging recently is to try to develop indicators that really reflect the voices and the understanding and the um, interests of people with disabilities themselves, and I think I think we're at a crisis now in in it, those indicators for the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, for other conventions, and for the Sustainable Development Goals, because I think if we keep measuring um, using very crude measurement, we're not going to move very far ahead, and I think. We're going backwards in some ways um, in the disability movement for sure in the way we're thinking about indicators and measures of, of what's happening for people. And if I can just attach that to the big one of the big issues is the north-south dialogue, which absolutely has to be changed to the south-north dialogue. So thinking about what are the indicators going to be for these kind of big millennium sustainable development goals, multi-millennium sustainability goals, then I think about, well, who's designing what the indicators are? And the indicators are coming from the north. And we need to have a south-north dialogue if we want to really be able to understand what's happening at the grassroots. Right. That resonates very much with some of the things I've been thinking about. Because I think to some extent the fault lies with us as academics and as researchers. The research methods we're using are all um, biased towards the norm, the average. So it's not just a north to south, but it's also from the middle out or from the largest to the smallest type of thing. Uh, and as you say, we need better indicators. We need more detailed indicators. But what that also means is that we need to stop being so reductionist in our research, right? We we try to find Absolutely. the dominant pattern and we miss and we exclude all of the individuals that don't fit those dominant patterns. So it it, it seems to be a, um, a pattern all over the place, whether it's within country, but also, as you say, very much from north to south. We've got these large data sets. And if you are not if you don't fit into that data set, then it's such a struggle to try to have your your um, view asserted. And I agree with you. Within accessibility, we're doing something very wrong because by virtue of creating these categories, these large groupings of disability, disability is about diversity. It's this jagged spectrum, right? And then we create this these uh, boxes that we tick off, blind, deaf, et cetera, et cetera. And there are so many people that don't fit well within those boxes. And so people fall through the cracks. And the tragedy of that is by promoting that view of accessibility and disability, we're making it even harder for anyone that doesn't fit those boxes. We're counting things, but we're counting, we're not even worrying about what we're counting. So we, we've decided that a way of determining 
inclusion in education is how many kids go to schools. Mm -hmm. It's not about how many kids learn, which is the only relevant factor at all, but it isn't even there. We just count the numbers. So if you say how many people have houses, Mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with having a home or having housing with dignity. Right. It's simply having a box around you. I love that story that you told. You should tell that story again of the woman with housing. Yeah, yeah, from That's such a powerful example. Yeah. And she's she's an incredible woman. She's she's from Jordan and she lives in in the um, in a refugee camp. And we were doing a a round table with a number of women who'd come in from the refugee camp fairly carefully monitored until we asked the men who had brought them in if they would leave. And so they were talking a bit about their lives, and the lives aren't so great in the camps, right, in the refugee mm-hmm. camps. They're not terrific. This is just outside Beirut, um, which is a huge camp that's been there for 50 to 70 years. And um, this woman said that she wanted to tell the story of how she'd always lived in her parents' house. Um, there's fairly settled housing in, mm-hmm. in this particular refugee camp. And she'd always lived in her parents' house, and then her parents died. And her brother said to her, okay, well, the house is mine now. Of course, he didn't have a disability, and she did, and he was a man and she was a woman, so it's clear why he got the house. And he said, so we want you to look after our kids every day um, during the day, but you go home at 5 o'clock because you have a disability and you're in a wheelchair and you're embarrassing to my wife. So he said, I will build you in the backyard a um, small house, um, 8 by 10, and it'll have food and it'll have water and all those things will supply that. And so you'll go back there and that's where you, that'll be your home from now on. And she looked at us and she said to me, you know, I'm in a wheelchair and there are two steps up to this house. So when I go there at five o'clock, I leave my wheelchair and I crawl up on the floor and I crawl around this house and um, I find the food and I find the the uh, water, but she said, I think I am disgusting, I think I am dirty, and I want to die, and I want to know if you can help me to die. And I thought, you know, by any characteristic that we could name, they would tick off that she was fine. Mm -hmm. If we're counting, then she's got a house, a roof over her head, she's got food, she's got water, she's got a wheelchair. So by any of our traditional methods of determining whether this woman has all that she needs, it would be yes. But she doesn't have housing with dignity. She doesn't have food with dignity. She has nothing. She's dirty on the floor, of course. And I think it's the one of the most clear examples I know of why we have to rethink what outcomes we're trying to achieve so we can measure outcomes. We don't measure mm-hmm. inputs. Right, yeah. Which I think is what you're talking about and what I'm right, talking yes, about yeah. and, and what what really concerns us. Some of it, I think, comes from the way we've traditionally defined outcomes for people with disabilities. So in the North, you know, it's all about services. So do you get the services you need? <laughs> and it's not services with dignity or services with autonomy or services that are equal to other people or the same kind of outcomes that other people get. It's simply... Did you get a service? Mm -hmm. Well, that's not about people living in a way similar to other people in a society. I'm sure you run into this all the time. 
Yeah, of course. It's and and I think what we don't ask is how are people feeling represented by the indicators, by the research, by these supposed services that we've shown to be statistically impactful or that we're awarding in some way. I, I think it's it's endemic of this sort of checkmark view of accessibility, that these are the boxes to tick off, and if you've ticked them off, then you've done the right thing. The issue is that accessibility and disability, what we're talking about is not a a one-size-fits-all type of... I mean, it's people are disabled because there's a difference, and that difference varies for everybody. And disability isn't necessarily the, the main defining characteristic of someone. It affects everyone, but it because people with disabilities are at the very edge of our society, they, they're the ones that feel it the first and the most. I mean, uh, when you, as you say, if you are a woman, if you have a disability, if you are in a society that doesn't values neither, then you're going to be the one, the first one to feel the effect of any crisis, to feel the effect of disparity. If there is economic, if there are economic issues, health issues, individuals with disabilities are at the very edge. And everything we've, we're doing to serve or to uh, make that better, if we're not going to the effort of, of representing people truly and locally and specifically what they need in that full diversity, then I think we're doing a disservice because the Mm-hmm. The generalizations, the reductionism, the putting everything into these static tick-off boxes is is really creating greater barriers because people will say, oh, I've made the effort. I've ticked the box. What's your problem? This is not about my not doing the right thing. See, I've done the right thing. Here's my certificate. Here's my award. Here's my checkbox. Here's the stats that show that my work is statistically significant and I've had huge numbers of impact. The more we can pile that up as justification for not addressing your needs as someone that doesn't fit those categories, the harder it becomes for the person that doesn't fit or that's excluded. We're creating a larger and larger wedge between someone that is experiencing that disability or is experiencing all of those issues and the rest of the world. I don't know if you have thoughts yeah, on that. No, I absolutely I agree with you. I think there are two things that are really important that I'd like to talk to you about. Too. One is how much of this is driven by funders? Because I think a huge amount of it is driven by funders. Oh, yeah. So that if you look, for example, in, in the area of employment, I do some work in, in employment, um, particularly in South Countries, the funders want you to say, how many people did you get employed? Not did you get one person a good job, which would be a good enough statistic by any comparison, since usually there's nobody gets a job. But what do you get? How many people can you affect? So people do training. And they say, I trained, I listened to someone last week, we trained 4,000 people. And I thought, well, who cares? Train 8,000. But you're talking about jobs. Mm-hmm. But again, it's just, it's the funder can say that they're successful if they have projects in which somebody's done employment training for 4,000 people. But training programs for 4,000 people says nothing about jobs. It says nothing about the economy. It says nothing about the systemic conditions that need to be changed to ensure that people with disabilities get jobs. And sustainable jobs, Mm -hmm. not jobs where they're going to starve to death, but they're still going to work, or they're going to sit in a 
in a park all day long because nobody really wants someone with disability inside the the workforce. So there's so that kind of where where does the drive come to keep enforcing this reductionism that you talk about? Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, I think this whole the whole way this occurs it completely misses the incredibly innovative ways of looking at issues. It's incredible. We can use what's happening in the field of disability to oh, actually address all kinds of issues, but it's not happening. Yeah, It's not happening because, as you say, there's a bigger and bigger wedge being drawn, and these are the people who are the outsiders, and these are the people who are the insiders. You and I went through it 30, 40 years ago around mm-hmm. women. Yeah, you know, and, and finally it became, well, we still... Don't earn a hundred cents on the dollar, but but the reality is that it's much better than it was. Yeah. But we're still there's still this um, somehow this block to thinking about if we can have if we can open up systems the way you talk about them, and recognize that it's everything has to be individuated in some way. Yeah. Then it's a different world, and and it would be helpful for yeah, everybody. It, you're right. Yeah, and I I think we're also. I mean, there's. I, I love what you're saying about funders because I, I believe that the yeah. the entire competitive funding process is biased against mm-hmm. diversity. It's biased against complexity and innovation. And we have a more and more complex world. We're really heading towards I don't know what a, a major crisis. We're not looking forward. Our view of the future is so short term and it's based on data from the past mm-hmm. and if we know of anything i mean it's not the past anymore we can't learn these things from the past um when you look at the funding process the brevity that they require i mean you always have you have a very short period of time to uh, propose something it has to be said in in tweet like language and uh, there's there's no way that you can then be talk about complexity or or complex strategies for an issue because of we have a peer review process and peers are reviewing established individuals that are the peer reviewers are going to try to keep the status quo because it's so competitive everybody needs to keep their own working and so anyone that is peerless or is doing something innovative or new has an even larger barrier to cross over in order to get support well and and it's interesting because it also is this um it so tends to be driven by the north yes so oh, the, so the, the northern development agencies are very um uh deterministic Mm-hmm. about what happens in the South. I always remember a friend of mine, I think he was head of DPI, Disabled Persons International, he's from Africa, and I remember him saying to me, there would never have been an institution in Africa except for for your northern countries because nobody would have enough money to build those institutions, but they continue to build them. Mm-hmm. They continue to build segregated schools. They continue to build closed facilities for people with disabilities. That's not coming from the South. That is, And it's not listening to people who live in communities in the southern countries. It's coming from funders saying, okay, this year our priority is employment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what we want is we want you to have a project in which you will have an impact on 1,500 people. So we teach another 1,500 people how to do a resume. Mm-hmm. These are people who already have five resumes because the funding agencies 
from or the International Development Agencies from four other countries have already been there. So people are simply discouraged. The employers know you don't even bother to look at the resumes mm -hmm. because they're all come out of the same workshops mm -hmm. um, and they don't have, it's not thinking about where are people going to fit into the future labor force instead of the current labor force, which is something you've talked a lot about. Um, we had a, a project where the metric for success was whether uh, youth form service entrepreneurships, and instead what they did was they went back to school. Um, and that was deemed to not be a success because, of course, it didn't meet the, the metrics. And a lot of what you're talking about, I, I, I love the your mention of how what we're doing and the types of, of changes that we think are needed would benefit everyone, all of these different crises that are out there. Because I think we know, and we know both from experience and from just having watched this this field for so long, that no good comes of excluding people. And the types of strategies that we know of to ensure that there is good prosperity that is going to not cause the conflict and the power struggles and the, the lack of sustainability and the lack of understanding what it does to the environment and to the community and the the, the social components of the technology and the socio-technical practices that we have out there. I mean, it's really disheartening to keep mm -hmm. seeing that people need to relearn that lesson again and again and again. But you're right. There are so many crises to think about that seem to be on the horizon, one of them being jobs. And the thing that I find most disheartening is that the limited resources and limited time and energy yes. that we have within the disability and accessibility community is being devoted to catching up to a place where society is going to be gone from soon. I mean, by the time a nice we catch it. up, mm -hmm. it everybody is going to have moved on and yeah. we're going to lose out again because we're pressuring individuals that ha that are facing barriers to employment to get jobs that are not going to be there. We are trying to get at education that isn't going to be useful by the time we've garnered that education. Uh, the society is moving on very quickly, and the place that requires innovation and foresight and thinking ahead mm -hmm. the most is this is our field of accessibility and disability. My huge concern is that we try to play the game the way the game is being played within work right now. And that game is not of benefit to anyone. The work-life balance is completely out. We have most people that have employment are overworked. And then uh, there's a greater and greater number of people that are unemployed. Um, where It's not a system that we want to participate in as it is currently designed. I, but I think in the process of pressuring for it to be redesigned, it, that would benefit everybody. I mean, to think about the types of supports, what makes people happy, what is profitable but also productive work from a person's perspective. How do we have work that makes you feel good about what you're doing? Mm -hmm. And what makes you feel good about work? Yeah, exactly. This is the question. Every yeah. time you actually ask people what makes them feel good about work, you know, it's not whether they're 
prime minister or president or premier or whatever. It's not even about is it, um, you know, such amazingly creative. It's about I can go home to my family and I have status. Uh -huh. I bring a paycheck home. Therefore, my mother-in-law, and this is a quote, my <laughs> mother-in-law speaks to me now. Mm -hmm. That's what I heard in Nepal. My mother speaks to me, so everything is okay. And, you know, so we, we need to know not yeah, our own exactly. metrics of why things make us feel good. You know, why you and right, I yeah. get pleasure out of our work is not important necessarily to somebody who's living in Colombia or somebody exactly, who's living in yeah. Buenos Aires or somebody who's living in, in Nepal. Mm -hmm. It's about what each person, where people find that kind of source of energy related to right. work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you were talking, one of the things that keeps coming into my mind is this whole issue around um, writing resumes. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. so compulsive, this writing resumes. Everyone's training people and writing resumes. You know, number one, there's nothing wrong with people with disabilities. There's a job for every person with a disability in the labor forces of the countries around the world. Mm -hmm. This is bizarre. It's not around we have to somehow train these people up to have particular yeah, right. careers. It makes no sense any more than training you and I up wouldn't be mm -hmm. very... But, and Oh, and the other big one is job readiness. And I'm now saying to almost every audience I speak to, look, I'm really hoping that before I retire, someone gives me some job readiness training so I know what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> and, and I don't know whether that's going to happen. But, you know, by getting people perfect resumes and training them in job readiness does absolutely nothing about the fact that there is no way, there's no transportation. We keep addressing the wrong issues. We need to actually figure out a way for people to be able to get to places of employment. Mm -hmm. They won't need the resume if they can get there. And we're now saying to people, look, before you go to the interview, key thing, make sure you know which bus you're going to take to work because that's what's really going to be asked. And that's what's relevant to people. But in the meantime, we're, you know, six weeks to learn how to write a resume, which just makes you a discouraged worker. It makes, it makes you a discouraged labor force participant because you've already done a resume mm -hmm. because yeah. the grants aren't about innovative things. The grants are to do exactly Let's what somebody else did last year. Yeah, yeah. Right. And fill out the reports and check off that we've done exactly what, what yeah. we said we did three years ago when yeah. the whole world has changed now. I mean, that's the, that's the that's other right. thing. There's yeah. no opportunity for agility. There's no opportunity yeah. to, to customize it to the situation mm -hmm. and to react appropriately to things that are happening and to the people that you're serving. Yeah. You have to do the same thing. Well, one of the things you and I have talked about before, just over coffee and lunches, is is this whole the, the whole area of the way in which people are being asked to, and you mentioned it earlier too, asked to adjust to a world that doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So jobs are an obvious one. I mean, we're telling people to to get jobs which are going to have disappeared in five years. So even if they get some kind of rational training or good training even, the jobs won't be there. Yeah. I mean, the, the restaurant jobs are disappearing. Mm -hmm. You know, people use tablets now. There is no thing. There is, the waiters are disappearing. Um, I'm sure there'll still be some in the very mm -hmm. expensive restaurants, but 
most of us don't attend those, and people with disabilities sure don't. But those jobs will disappear. Schools are going to change enormously. We're just not going to have the same kind of education as we've had previously. And so even if you go through it, as when you graduate, the jobs won't be there for no, what you've been trained for. Yet. No, and, and there's no the assembly lines are disappearing because robots do a fine job and they're faster and they're more accurate. All these things are disappearing. It's not as though they're going to come back. We're not suddenly going to see them again no. after we've trained up all these people with disabilities. Those jobs are gone. And anyway, they're bad jobs, and they pay minimum wages or less. I think there's a, a such a disconnect now, and you've talked about this before, the disconnect between how we're trying to change individuals and really what the systemic changes that are happening are, and we need to somehow be able to pull that together. Right. And it's interesting because that, that same phenomena is happening all over the place, and I think that's where all sorts of entities could benefit from the strategies we need to change as well. Right. So for example, the the I, I think to some extent the smaller universities like the one I'm part of mm-hmm. are trying to catch up to the larger universities, but thereby losing what differentiates them. And the larger mm-hmm. universities are going to be gone from that uh, position later on. Um, but it seems to be a very common pattern. So pushing towards not that competitive perspective, but trying to infuse the whole society with a little bit more collaboration. I mean, we start the competition part in school, and we were mm-hmm. talking about bullying earlier. But I think a large part of bullying and a large part of, of many of the social ills that happen right from the beginning of school are our fault. I mean, it, it's the, the parents, the educators, the system that is pushing this competition as opposed to collaboration from grade one, from um, the, the very beginning. Of course, with competition, the more people you are better than or that that you push below you, the, the faster you'll rise, right? And mm-hmm. so it's it's endemic of an attitude that is, is not doing us well, whether it's north-south dialogue, whether it's within education, whether it's within jobs, whether it's within financial disparity and economic disparity. And we're seeing the cost. Yeah, exactly. The, the, in the universities now, at least in the north universities, and I can't mm-hmm. say another, but in the north universities, the competition is now so great that what we're seeing is the rise in in um, in uh, mental health issues. Yeah. Well, yeah. of course, because people can't compete in that level. It's not about learning anymore. No. It's about it's getting about the A plus marks. instead of getting a yeah. B plus. Right. And so we're moving in a in a very odd direction. Yeah. And it's no longer the pleasure of learning or the joy of mm-hmm. of learning something and the, and keeping that as a lifelong habit. Mm-hmm. It's about let's just get through this grueling process and get the highest marks. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate. But this is, you know, I think what I see in traveling, and I'm sure you see this too, is this, the agenda is still being imposed from the north to the south because the money's coming from the north and going to the south. It's a power hierarchy. Yeah. 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 And so somebody's got this great idea that if we train people, then we'll be able to increase the labor market and we want to increase the labor market because that reduces costs and all of the other business case that goes along with that. But I think it's really important to think about why would we expect 
that things that work in the North countries are going to work in the South countries. They're, they have different economies. They have different social structures. They have different economic structures. Why would we assume that? Mm-hmm. We certainly don't necessarily look to other northern countries to say, well, we're going to adopt that model entirely. Mm-hmm. The situation is very distinct mm-hmm. in yeah. in South countries, and, and, and the needs are very distinct, but we're, we're still imposing... Yeah, and we're the always sort of assuming models, rehabilitation that, models, which are, yeah, exactly. which are somehow you know supposed to be universal. And there's a lot of these things that are seen as yeah. universal solutions, which right. clearly yeah, have that, this no whole impact. notion of independence and mm-hmm. um, yeah, as opposed to the acknowledging inter- the importance of interdependence. And mm-hmm. we're always assuming that the South is going to learn from the North. The mm-hmm. the thing that that. I love when I'm traveling in the South is just these examples of where the South has so leapfrogged us. I mean, they've they've <laughs> yes. dealt with, you know, they've completely sloughed off some of the problems that yeah. we see as these wicked, horrible, complex <laughs> things that we're never, ever going to solve. Um, and in large part, I think it's often because there aren't these um, ossified structures or that they have to overcome. You if you're beginning from the beginning, then you can do it right, and you can do it right and much more smartly than and much more locally um, appropriate than it, mm-hmm. something that's imposed from outside. For example, one thing that I love is what Brazil and other South um, American countries have done in terms of academic publishing. Here, I mean, if you look at the U.S., it's such a hegemony there. It's... Uh, there you have the textbook adoption process and it's something with respect to print and if you require alternative formats it's almost impossible to get around the digital rights management well uh, brazil just basically decreed <laughs> that, that no publisher uh, who doesn't give it for free in the correct format can uh, enter the school system etc there's more and more of those examples where it's in fact the South that's leading in terms of inclusion and designing for diversity and doing things that are progressive and that bring greater community prosperity rather than... There's a wonderful story of a woman from England. She was doing a study in sub-Saharan Africa around about, about women about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And she um, arrived. She has a big, huge wheelchair. And she arrived in this wheelchair and got off the plane. And she had brought... I think 20 wheelchairs with her because somebody had donated 20 wheelchairs. You know how people are always donating wheelchairs. And so she had these. So they they were all sitting on the runway. And she realized she couldn't move anywhere because the (laughs) desert is not made for wheelchairs. So this this one woman, she said, this one woman, well, you wanted a wheelchair. And she said, no, I didn't. I asked for a wheelbarrow so my kids could push me to the women's meeting. And I could go out every week and see the other women. I never asked for a wheelchair because I have no place to plug it in. And besides which, it won't roll on the desert. So I thought, well, isn't that the perfect example? You know, it's just completely missing the point. And she really, they got her a wheelchair and she's a wheelbarrow and she was perfectly happy. Yeah, there's another corollary in education there, the the um, smart boards. I don't know how many communities I've been visiting where there's the shrine of the smart board. You have a school which has almost nothing, but they have this 
air-conditioned, clean sanctuary for a smart board that's sitting there all on its own. And you ask, has anybody ever touched it? No, of course not. We can't, right? Um, and the only the condition upon which they get it is because they will provide this this clean, air-conditioned environment for it. Well, the rest, all the classes have no air conditioning, are not, I mean, are completely falling apart. to a lot of things that people with disabilities need. It's not high tech. Yeah, exactly. It's individuated, but it's not necessarily no, high tech. But, but we've gone into, you know. Yeah, right. Exactly. That, yeah. I mean, the whole, the, the cult of the widget and yeah. innovation as a widget um, and the widgets are going to fix everything mm-hmm. is, I, I think, luckily, we're getting beyond that. I was at the... Um, at a number of conventions in Europe a few years ago. And after millions and millions of dollars spent and tons of technology Mm -hmm. created, the conclusion at the end of it was, well, it's not really about this technology. It's about the the social implications of the technology. So we need to reinvest the, the monies within this particular domain or issue in what are the social implications. But it goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning about the sort of what are the indicators? How do we think about indicators? When You know, one of the biggest things that, that we all recognize is that there's massive poverty in the world, and we need to address that poverty. The sustainable development goals, the first goal is poverty. It has to be addressed. But when we look at the indicators, the indicator is about whether we move the income that a person has each day from $1 to $1.50 or $1.25, which has nothing to do with when I say to people, what does poverty mean to you? And it isn't, it's not about a dollar or a dollar and a quarter. It's a very different, um, almost emotional kind of, not necessarily emotional, that's probably not the right word, but but a complex notion Mm -hmm. of what poverty means. You know, the guy who got the job, who was so happy, not because he had a job, but because his, but he had a mother-in-law who paid attention to him. He had a mother-in-law who respected him. It wasn't about the dollar or the dollar fifty. It was about the respect he could gain from somewhere. And I think we have to go back and talk to people. I mean, we've been, we've moved so far away. And as you say, maybe it's because of our, because we're in universities, I don't know. But we've moved so far away from finding out from people what things mean to them. What does it mean to, to learn? Yeah, quite often it's this, the feeling of safety. Um, sometimes when you go into a position that doesn't fit you, it just intensifies the lack of security and, and mm-hmm. safety. You're, you're worried even more. The anxiety increases. There, there's so many ways in which we are... Uh, I mean, I, I talk about the cobra effect, the unintended consequence of oversimplistic solution to a complex problem. And I, I, I think there, there needs to be a corollary, which is sort of the misapplication of this oversimplistic idea about what is going to serve everybody. And I, I agree with you that we, we need to rethink how, not just the indicators, but how we create the indicators, right? We need to... Where's the source of our knowledge yeah, for the exactly, indicators? Yeah. yeah. And we don't have that. I mean, the, the SDGs just came out and there were the there were the SDGs, the goals, and there were the indicators. And lots of people talked their way through it while that was going on. But 
nobody was asking people in the communities mm-hmm. what their sense was. Right. And I think we need, we really need to move towards that quickly. Because, that bottom up. Because we, bottom up and we need to start to think about how really important it is. If we want to accomplish these, if we really want to address poverty and we really want to address gender issues and we really want to address some of these other issues that are in the something like the Sustainable Development Goals, we need to have everybody on board. Mm-hmm. And you can't get everybody on board if you've got a definition that means of, of poverty that means nothing to the person who's poor. Right. Yeah. You know, it isn't whether the, what the rich guy thinks about being poor is. It's what does the poor guy think about being yeah. poor. And, and we, need to, we need to shift that if we really are interested in thinking about where do we go forward, not just for people with disabilities, but for all kinds of people. Yeah. And I think that the lesson in that is the unrepresented. I, I, we supposedly, within our research, within our indicators, within academia, we're creating representations but we don't realize that quite often our representations exclude quite a number of people. There are many people that are unrepresented by what we see as the cardinal um, picture of, of what a, a person should be or what they should like. And it, it is often an imposition of something that is a complete mismatch with where people are, are really at. But unfortunately, if we don't address this, yeah. We're going to end up with exactly the same thing we did with the Millennium Development Goals, which is nothing happened. I think it's a mistake when we have these global opportunities where all kinds of people with resources and, and capacity are willing to invest in making things better for people. It seems to me it's incumbent on us to start to really address how are we going to do that and what are those, how are we going to know whether it occurred or not. Yeah, it's really critical that we're effective now. We're at this crisis point where things are really falling apart. So we don't have time, I don't think. And we shouldn't waste our energy on things that are only perpetuating the disparity and that are perpetuating uh, that imposition of Mm -hmm. something on a group and excluding uh, a large number of individuals. We have a long way to go. I think we can get there. I mean, I think we have enough micro examples, regional examples, city example, country example of where it's possible to move. But I think we're a long way, and and I'm sure you will say this as well, when you look at the way funders are funding, they're not funding towards looking at what do people on the ground say? What do they think? Yeah. How do they define this issue? Yeah, the yeah. funders need to take a risk. Uh, yeah. I, I think the the inclination when things go wrong or when things are in crisis is to uh, be more controlling, but that's the worst thing. What we mm-hmm. need to do is we need to allow people to be responsive, to trust people who are doing work from the bottom up, the people on the ground, because that's the only way we're, we're going to get through this. It's mm-hmm. not by imposing some and increasing control. Increasing control reduces freedom of movement. It re- reduces that ingenuity and, and resourcefulness that people who are have lived experience, people who are on a day-to-day basis having to respond to survive and to be agile, we need to give them the license 
to do that. And we need to trust people from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be a quick fix. No, exactly. But it's going to be sustainable if we do it right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Keva, I think we're done. It was the eighth episode of Quantization. We want to thank you, Tom Marcia, for accepting our invitation and you all for listening to our podcast. As always, Marsha Biro is the composer of all its scores for quantization. I want to mention another name, who is Bert Shire from the IDRC. He is always an essential help through the process. For more episodes and more information, please check our website, quantization.ca, and come back for upcoming episodes. Podcast.